Anyway, since it's the first time I've spoken here, to my knowledge, I have five questions to ask, which I ask everywhere I go. Number one, how many of you believe that this is the Word of God? Could I see? That's pretty unanimous. Number two, how many of you believe this is the most important book that anyone could ever read? Pretty unanimous. Question number three, how many of you have read it? I didn't say bits of it. I said it. All of it. Now that's what, about half, would you say? Or what's it look like to you? About half. Question number four. How many of you have read any other book right through? I thought they just put their hands up to say that this was the most important book anyone could ever read. I don't believe you were honest when you answered that second question. Number five, and as God is watching, don't dare to put your hand up quickly or to put it up at all unless you mean it. How many of you are going to read this book? Now think before, it's a big thing to do. Three quarters of a million words. If you read three chapters a day and five on Sunday, it'll take you exactly 12 months. Or you could get one of the new through-the-year Bibles, which tells you how much to read. All right, put your hands down. It doesn't matter if I saw your hand or not. The Lord did. And he will remind you that you put your hand up. But it's worth coming to Norwich to get Christians to read the Bible. We've already been at work and done something. That's good. Do you know, we have too many Bibles in England, many too many. A few months ago, I was smuggling Bibles into China. There were five of us on a crowded Chinese train, and we were each carrying hundreds of little paper Bibles. And we separated when we got into China, and we mingled with the crowd, and we prayed that if God, who can open doors when... No man can shut and shut doors when no man can open. We prayed that if he wanted his word in there, that they would not look into our luggage. And five of us went through quite independently, weighed down with two hand grips and a backpack, and anybody with any sense would see that I wasn't just carrying a toothbrush. <laughs> but there were five people on that train whose luggage was not examined. Because the word of God is not bound. And this afternoon I did a little pilgrimage to the custom house in King's Lynn and the old warehouse on the wharf at King's Lynn uh, belonging to the Hanseatic League in the 13th and 14th centuries because it was through that warehouse and against those customs officers that the first English Bibles were smuggled into this country by people risking their lives to get the Bible through to you. Did you know that? It was through King's Lynn those Bibles came. They were smuggled from Holland inside cotton bales. And if they'd been caught, they would have been executed for doing it. The most I ran the risk of was some prison imprisonment or deporting from the country. But I, I wasn't risking my life to take the Bibles into a country where they've only got one Bible between every 2,000 believers. We have too many Bibles here, and half the Christians here have not read it yet.
please don't pick and choose, please don't use the medicinal method of Bible reading. Do you know what the medicinal method is? Twelve verses a day keeps Satan away, you know? And that's about how many people do. The Bible was not meant, meant to be read like that. So you read it. And when you finish, like painting the fourth bridge, start at the beginning again. So since this is Anglia Bible Week, and we don't want to be had up under the Trades Descriptions Act, I'm going to spend time reading the Bible to you. In fact, my wife would tell you that I prefer reading the Bible to preaching. So I'm going to read the Bible to you. You know when the Living Bible came out, we read the whole Bible right through from cover to cover, non-stop. We could have got in the Guinness Book of Records, but we didn't think about it. We weren't doing it for that reason. But we got through it in 82 and a quarter hours. We started 9 o'clock Sunday night and we finished reading at breakfast time on Thursday morning. And we didn't stop for one minute. For the whole time, we just read the whole Bible right through. An aggregate of 2,000 people came to listen, and we sold half a ton of Bibles. And I could keep you here all night telling you of lives that were changed. Paul said to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Didn't say devote yourself to choruses, they have their place. But he did say devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Are you doing that? Not just to the private reading of it, but the public reading of it. So I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm going to read one whole book and then a chapter. All right? No, don't open your Bibles, please. I want to read it to you. You can read your Bible at home. The Bible was meant to be read publicly and people were meant to listen to it. That's the way you should do it. And in any case, you've probably got a different version from the one I've got, so you'd just be confused. All right, here's the first book that I'm going to read. The whole book, and it's not just one chapter, I'm afraid. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to that great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish. And he went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. Oh, now surely that was circumstantial guidance, wasn't it? You know what circumstantial guidance is. You want to go somewhere, and it just happens there's a ship going there. It's what some Christians call guidance. Well, he found a ship. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Tarshish was right at the other end of Spain. It was as far as you could go in the then known world. And then the Lord sent a great wind upon the sea. This is the first of eight nature miracles in the book of Jonah. And I want you to count all eight. People get hung up on the whale. That's very foolish. Because that's one of the smallest miracles in the book of Jonah. There are eight nature miracles in the book of Jonah. Count them as we go. Then the Lord sent a great wind, number one on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up and all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship but Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep and the captain went down to him and said how can you sleep get up and call on your God maybe he will take notice of us and will not perish then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots 
to find out who is the cause of this calamity. And they cast lots and the lot fell upon Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made this sea and the earth. And this terrified them and they asked, what have you done? And they knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they said to him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And he replied, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come to you. Instead, the men did their best to row to the land, but they couldn't, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, please, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. That's number two, isn't it? At this the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and even made vows before him. But the Lord provided a great fish. That's three, I think, isn't it? To swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Now the next bit of the story you will not understand unless you realize that Jonah was dead inside the whale. His body and spirit were separated, which is what we know as death. We know that because if you listen carefully, he describes the fish did not pick him up immediately. His body sank to the bottom of the ocean, to the roots of the mountains, until his head was caught in the seaweed at the bottom of the Mediterranean. And only then did the fish pick up his body and his prayer, he says, I am crying to you from Sheol, from Hades, from the world of the departed. The whale only picked up a dead body. We are witnessing a miracle of resurrection, which is why Jesus said, as Jonah was inside the belly of the whale for three days and three nights so will the Son of Man be. You understanding now? It's not a problem as to how Jonah stayed alive in the whale. The problem is how did he get back to life? Here's his prayer from inside the fish. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God and he said, In my distress I called to the Lord. And he answered me. And from the depths of Sheol I called for help. From the depths of Hades, the world of the departed, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You held me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas. And the currents swirled around me. And all your waves and breakers swept over me. I said I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. That was his last thought before he drowned. I'll see the temple again. Isn't that amazing? And then the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head and to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me 
in forever. You brought my life up from the pit. That's Hades again. Sheol, the world of the dead, the pit. O oh Lord my God. And when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, O oh Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. And those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. That's number five. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to that great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah started into the city a distance of about a day's journey. And he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and of all his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock taste anything, nor let them drink anything, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let everyone call urgently on God and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion. And he didn't bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? And Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. That's miracle number six, I think, isn't it? But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. Miracle number seven. Now, I think this is the biggest miracle of all. I've got a friend in America who trains whales but I've never known a man who could train a worm. I've even seen a flea circus, but I've never seen a worm circus. Man can tell whales what to do, but man cannot tell worms what to do. Here is miracle number seven and the biggest of all. 
And God told a worm to come and chew the vines so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. That's number eight, I think, isn't it? It's packed with miracles, this book. And people have problems with the whale. They've missed the biggest problems. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And he wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry? About the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. That means children, by the way. Not morally aware of right and wrong yet. Nineveh has 120,000 children in it and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Boy, I feel like closing down. That's the message. Isn't it great? God is concerned about the great city. Especially for the children and the animals. What a God. All right, that's the Old Testament lesson. Here endeth the lesson. Now I'm going to read from the New Testament. But just one short passage. And the link between the two readings is a five-letter word, rarely mentioned today, but which I'm going to preach on. Try and guess the word before I mention it. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard and he agreed to pay them a denarius in our terms that's about two pounds he agreed to pay them two pounds for the day and sent them into his vineyard about the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing and he told them you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right so they went and he went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. And the workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each of them received about two pounds. So when those came who were hired first, naturally they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received about two pounds. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. 
Didn't you agree to work for two pounds? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I have been generous? So the last will be first and the first last. Do you know what the word is yet? The five letter word? Well, I won't mention it for a little while, but you keep thinking. That parable which I've just read has been preached both at the Labour Party conference and at the Tory party conference. Did you know that? <laughs> at the Labour Party, it was Lord Soper who preached and he claimed that in that parable, Jesus was teaching socialism. That everybody has a right to work. And that everybody has a right to a living wage, whether they can find work or not. And therefore there should be money given to those who can't find work as well as to those who can. Jesus was a socialist and in this parable he was teaching us good socialism. But then the same parable was used by the Tories. And they said, here is Jesus teaching good capitalist, laissez-faire economic policy. The boss has the right to hire and fire. The boss can fix wages. He doesn't have to deal with civil servants or trade unions. This is what we stand for. We follow Jesus. It's amazing how many people say they follow Jesus. Arthur Scargill says that he follows Jesus. Says his favorite hymn was, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. He then went on to say that if the gospel writers had only been more accurate in reporting Jesus' words... We would then know for sure that Jesus was a good socialist. Do you know what all these people are doing? They are taking bits of the Bible and only bits. They are not taking the whole. Because a man quotes texts, that doesn't mean he's preaching a biblical sermon. You must be more discerning than that. Anybody can prove anything from bits of the Bible. And from bits of this parable, you can prove that Jesus was a socialist or a Tory or anything else. But none of them will take the parable as a whole. Because Jesus was not giving us good industrial policy. In fact, if you tried to apply this parable in any industry in Britain, it's a recipe for disaster. Jesus hasn't a clue about personnel management, if this is his advice, on how to handle workers. So what's it all about? Why did he tell the story? There's something in it that shocks, that we don't really like. And we've got to find out what it is, because it's very important that we understand the kingdom. I'm going to be teaching about the kingdom every, uh, not every, three mornings this week. Is it Monday, Wednesday, Friday? I don't know. But I'm teaching about the kingdom. Tonight, I'm just giving you a little hors d'oeuvre by introducing you to one aspect of the kingdom that is very heavily laid on my heart just now. And it comes right out of this story. If any employer today operated on that basis, he would have an all-out strike on his hands. You can almost hear the foreman in that parable in terms of a modern shop steward arguing that wage differentials must be related to shift hours and work conditions. We have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. There should be proper wage differential. 
I'm just putting it in modern language, but that's the story. Just try and imagine what would happen the very next day when that employer went down to the job center. There wouldn't be a man in sight until four o'clock in the afternoon. And then they'd all turn up, right? But in fact, I doubt if anyone would work for that man again. Because not only did it estrange the workers from the boss, it estranged them from each other and they went home so angry with each other as well as with him that there was just a total breakdown of relationships all around. That's why I say it's a recipe for an industrial disaster if you take it as Jesus' politics. But Jesus didn't tell the story for that reason. He says, I'm talking about the kingdom of heaven. This is how it operates. Now, whenever Jesus told a parable, there are always two parts to a parallel parable. There's the part that everybody knows and understands that could happen any day, anywhere. And there's the part that is just so unlikely to happen that it almost makes the parable a fairy story. To give you an example, Jesus one day told a story about two Jewish or one Jewish moneylender who had two creditors or two debtors. Now, there's nothing unusual about a Jewish moneylender. And then Jesus said they couldn't pay him, so he freely forgave them both. That's the point at which people say, come off it. That doesn't happen. Jewish moneylenders don't do that. But Jesus said the kingdom of heaven does. It's always at the point where something totally unexpected happens that the message of the parable gets through. That you suddenly change from thinking about a very ordinary earthly situation and heavenly truth comes stark into the situation and you have to think and think and think again. Now in this story there's nothing unusual about a job center in the marketplace where people hung around waiting for work and some people turned up late looking for work and some people turned up early looking for work. There's nothing very different about that. You'll find people in the job center turning up at four in the afternoon and some turn up eight in the morning. And a man finding workers and agreeing to pay them so much a day, there's nothing funny about that. It only begins to be odd at the end of the day when he pays them. And the first odd thing is that he does the most tactless, foolish thing. If he wanted to give them all the same, he should have paid the ones who'd worked all day and got them nicely out of the way so they would never know what he gave the rest. That's personnel management. <laughs> Unfortunately, the employer in the parable had not been to a course on how to handle personnel. And he said, those who've worked all day can wait the longest for their wages. That's the point at which you say, no, no. It just, this doesn't work on earth. And it's the point at which the kingdom of heaven is beginning to come in. You with me? And then comes the second and the greatest shock of all. Every parable is like a scorpion. It has a real sting in the tail, so watch the tail. And right at the tail, when they open their wage packets, they've all got the same. That's when the real trouble starts. 
Now, how does this apply? Some Christians, as soon as they read the word heaven, think of somewhere in the great beyond. Unfortunately, the word heaven has been so preached as somewhere else, after death, that people don't relate it to earth and to this life. And so many Christians have preached this parable and said, this is a picture of heaven. And when we get there, we shall all finish up with the same reward. Whether we've been a Christian for seven weeks or 70 years, we shall all be treated equally. Heaven is the great egalitarian society in which everybody will have the same. And that's what the parable is about. The kingdom of heaven means that in the end, we'll all get the same. Isn't that good? Whether we've been faithful Christians or not so good Christians, we'll all get the same. It's very comforting and it's absolute rubbish. Because this parable is not about heaven. For one thing, Jesus made it quite clear we shall not all be equal in heaven. Some will have more than others in heaven. And what they have will be directly related to how they've handled this world. Jesus said there will be big rewards for some and little rewards for others. We will not finish up with the same in heaven. But apart from that, if this is a picture of what heaven's going to be like, it's going to be one long wages dispute. <laughs> because at, at the end of this story, you could write at the end of the story, and they lived unhappily ever after. If this is what heaven's going to be like, I don't want to go there. There's too much of arguing about wages on earth. Don't want to spend eternity doing the same thing. Listen. When Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like, half the stories he told were about the future, but the other half were about the present. Jesus held in balance the kingdom. It is half here and now, and it is half there and then. And it's very important to know which half you can have here and now and which half you have to wait for. There's an awful lot of preaching about the kingdom that's getting out of balance. Some Christians say the kingdom is all future. No use talking or thinking about it now. It'll come by and by. But it's not here. And those sort of Christians never talk about the kingdom, never sing about it, never think about it, because it's all future. But now, especially in charismatic circles, there, there are so many who say it's all now, it's all present, it's all here. And they've stopped talking about heaven. And stopped singing about heaven. Because it's all present. The parables of Jesus are exactly balanced. Half of the stories are about the future and half are about the present. And I'll be teaching more about that during the week. But this parable is one of the ones about the present. For Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven has broken in. In my coming, the kingdom is here. It's within your grasp. It's within your reach. It's at hand. Anything that's at hand is within your reach. And he said, it's right now in your midst. It's among you. And in this parable, he's talking about how the kingdom of heaven operates on earth, here and now. And it operates on an entirely different principle to all the kingdoms of earth. That's the problem that we have with the story. We are so used to thinking of the way the kingdoms of earth operate that we can't cope with the kingdom of heaven on earth. Oh, I've got a rival preacher at the back somewhere. 
Right, well let's ask what is he saying about the present in this? He's saying a new order has begun. The kingdom of heaven is now operating here on earth in the ordinary things of life. There's a new principle operating. And he said the principle, the very simple one, the kingdoms of the earth operate on a five-letter word called merit. The kingdom of heaven on earth operates on a five-letter word called mercy. And we're going to have to do some very hard thinking to see the difference. Whether you are in a capitalist or a communist country, we all of us live in what is called a meritocracy in which you get what you deserve. And you'll have to look after your rights because if you don't, no one will. In which you'll have to fight for what you get. In which you will get your deserts. In which you have to pass exams, in which you have to achieve, in which you have to do this in order to get that. That's the way every kingdom on earth operates on merit. And it applies just as much in Russia as in England or America. But the kingdom of heaven operates quite differently on the principle of mercy. Not on what you deserve, but on the principle of what you don't deserve, but need. That's the kingdom of heaven. I'm so glad I'm working for Jesus. You will see the normal earthly outlook in the employees in the story, and you will see the heavenly outlook in the employer. This should not be called the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. It should be called the parable of the eccentric employer. That would direct our attention to the real message. Now, when you look at the story, whose side would you take in the dispute? Who would you stand with in the dispute? Be honest with yourself. Whose side are you on? Who do you sympathize with, the workers or the boss? Really, you must be honest about this. I'll tell you, the first thing we learn in life is a sense of injustice. You never had to teach your children any more than I had to teach my three children to say the words, it's not fair. Did you teach your children to say that? But how old were they when they said it? Very, very quickly in life, we have a sense of injustice of being unfairly treated. When my mother gave two of us, her children, an apple to share, she made one of us cut it in half and the other had first pick. And if you had taken those two halves and put them on a very delicate balance in a laboratory, they would have been exactly equal. Because her piece is bigger than mine, he got more than I did. It's so ingrained in us and we don't grow out of it because the kingdoms of earth are based on a sense of injustice. If you watch a little child say it's not fair, look at what happens to the face. It's not fair. And now look at a picket line. Look at a picket line 
outside a coal mine or outside a press down in London and you will see exactly the same expression on the face only more so because as we grow older our faces adopt our emotions every man and woman in this building over 40 is responsible for their face I notice that it's the young people that are laughing you wait it is absolutely true that if you are not very good looking under 40 that is not your fault but if it is over 40 it is your fault for you've got the face you've given yourself over 40 talking about looking into a mirror and not looking liking what you saw last night didn't you well it's your own fault it's mine and if you've gone through life in the kingdom of earth saying it's not fair well I know what will have happened to your face and others will see it these emotions not only harm your face they harm your health do you know that 75% of all cases of rheumatoid arthritis are due to that kind of emotion bitterness resentment I'll never forget a lady being brought in a wheelchair to a service and I was asked to pray for the healing of this lady in the wheelchair afterwards she was twisted up with rheumatoid arthritis and she said please will you pray for me that I may be healed and I asked her one question I said who do you hate and she said my husband and she spat out the words I said then I will not pray for your healing until you've forgiven your husband whatever he's done I don't even want to know what he's done until you forgive him from your heart there's no point in us praying for your healing and this twisted woman her face twisted with more hatred and she said I'll never forgive him I'll never forgive him I said then you'll never be healed and they wheeled her out of that room and I can see her yet I know what her body will be like now that's the kingdoms of earth how they live on what we deserve what we have a right to have have you noticed that the word mercy is almost dropping right out of conversation and it's been replaced by the word right and it was Thomas Paine a man from Norfolk here who started it all Thomas Paine wrote a book called the rights of men if he were alive today his wife would be writing the rights of women but you notice how often the word right is now used we have a right to work we have a right to health we have a right to happiness we have a right 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 and we've been taught to think of our rights and fight for our rights listen when you live in the kingdom of heaven on earth you have no rights none at all all you have are mercies I've got a healthy body you can see that that's not a right that's a mercy I've work to do and I've got enough money coming in to keep myself and my wife that's not a right that's a mercy and his mercies are fresh every morning 
Just like the milk we get off the doorstep. Only he delivers mercies every day. Now here's a very important point. I'm afraid I'm going to make you think now. I don't apologize for that actually. The greatest unexplored territory in the world is between your ears. <laughs> and we're told to love God with all our minds. But so often after I preach, people thank me at the door and say, well, you gave us something to think about. As if the last thing they wanted to do in a meeting was think. <laughs> Listen, there's too much shallow, frothy Christianity around that won't stand the test of persecution when it comes. You've got to do your thinking. Here's the first thing I want you to think about. Mercy cannot be mercy until it's at least just. Mercy and justice are not contradictory. They travel the same road, but mercy goes further than justice down the same road. Do you follow me? Mercy must be fair to everybody first, and then go further. It must never be a contradiction to justice, it must go further than justice. Are you following me? I'm not sure you all are, but at least some of you are thinking hard now. God cannot be merciful towards you until he's been at least just. Because mercy and justice must never be used to contradict each other. God is both just and merciful. And he must never be so merciful that he becomes unjust. Or so just that he becomes unmerciful. The employer in the story was fair to everybody. He said, I haven't been unfair to you. I've paid you what I agreed. I've paid you what you're worth. I haven't been unfair. I haven't been unjust. I've been perfectly fair, perfectly just. God will always be perfectly fair and perfectly just. But God is merciful and he loves to go beyond that. Thank God he does. Because if he gave you what was just and what was fair and no more, you wouldn't be alive. Neither would I. He is being more than fair. He is showing mercy. You know the difference. Let me explain it simply. A man went to have his portrait taken by a photographer and he said to the photographer as he posed, I hope this portrait will do me justice. And the photographer said, it's not justice you need, it's mercy. <laughs> now you know the difference. All right? Mercy goes beyond justice. Justice is what you deserve. Mercy is what some people love to give you. And God loves to show mercy. Now let me deal with dear old Jonah for a moment and I've got three more things to say which are all pretty deep and require a lot of thought. And the first is this. Jonah said, God, people will exploit your mercy. The real reason why Jonah fled to Spain is not understood by most Bible readers. They think it is because he was being told to go and preach to a Gentile city. Rubbish. There's no mention of that. In the fourth chapter, Jonah says to God, this is exactly what I said would happen when I was back home. This was why I fled to Spain. Now, you've got to know a little history of Jonah to understand this. And most people think that Jonah is only mentioned in the book of Jonah. He's not. He's mentioned in the book of Kings. Second book of Kings, chapter 14, if you want to look it up when you get home. And in that chapter, it tells us that Jonah had already been bitten. And once bitten was twice shy. What had happened was this. 
He lived in the... By the way, he came from the same place as Jesus. There were only two prophets came from Nazareth. One was Jesus, one, one was Jonah. And Jonah, so he had a lot in common with Jesus, not just his death and resurrection. His birth as well, same place. But Jonah was born in the reign of King Jeroboam. And it says, King Jeroboam did evil in the sight of the Lord. And Jonah the prophet was sent to him with a message of mercy. And the message was, Jeroboam, in spite of your evil doing, I'm going to be good to you. I'm going to enlarge your borders and give you Damascus and give you Hamat. I'm going to give you all this land. And Jeroboam abused God's mercy and did even more evil in the sight of the Lord. And Jonah thought, that's it. I will never get involved in that situation again. I know that God will let people off and when he does, they will simply exploit his mercy and go right back into sin. And so he said, God, I'm not going to be caught that way again. I fled to Spain because I knew you were merciful. I knew you'd let Nineveh off. And he said, it won't work, God, if you let people off. They just go right back into their wicked ways. I'm going to sit outside the city and watch them do it. And I'll prove you wrong, Lord. He was very angry with God for letting him down. Because he got a great sermon on judgment. And he, he staked his reputation on judgment coming in 40 days. And now, said God, said Jonah, you've put me through it all again. And you just watch, I'm going to sit here and just watch it happen. I'll sit on this hill overlooking Norwich and watch it happen. What is the hill overlooking Norwich? What was it, darling? St. James's Hill, that's right. There was a kind of St. James's Hill outside uh, Nineveh. And he sat down there and he said, Now, Lord, you've let them off. You don't think they've really repented, do you? If you let them off and no judgment comes. And the tragedy of, of it is that Jonah was right. He was right. Nineveh exploited God's mercy and went right back into sin. Jonah was right. Have you had this problem with God? I have. You can be so jealous for God and so hurt by the way people treat him that you feel a good dose of judgment would shake them. And you get a bit angry with God for not giving them a bit of a lesson. Are you understanding Jonah's heart a bit? It's part of the problem we have with God's mercy that he will put off judgment as long as ever he can and the longer he puts it off the less people take notice of it isn't that true of English people right now have you ever thought if God just gave us a really good bit of judgment why some Christians have almost feverishly seized on AIDS as a possible example but God is merciful I stood outside York Minster on the day that well the day after it burnt down I watched the smoldering ruins and I trembled before God because the fire chief who put out that fire 
the architect, one of the architects responsible for having spent three million renovating it just before, having installed the very latest lightning conductor system which was blown by that single streak of lightning, which came from a cloud no bigger than a small one that should have produced a few drops of rain but no lightning or thunder, a cloud that was the only cloud over the whole of Yorkshire that day that circled York Minster for 20 minutes and disappeared and from it came the lightning but no thunder that burned down the cathedral. There's the picture. And I stood outside the smoldering ruins of, of York Minster and I, I said, God, was that your judgment? He said, no, my mercy. I waited till everybody was out. The only people who said it wasn't of God were the bishops and the archbishops. And they've taken no notice of it. No notice. The fire chiefs, the meteorologists, the architects said it was of God. The bishops have taken no notice. And you sit outside your ministry and you say, I told you God. They take no notice when you let them off. And it's true. But it's also true of you and me and if you exploit God's mercy yourself you've no right to talk to anybody else about it the first thing we need to understand God loves to postpone judgment he will put it off as long as ever he can and I want to tell you now I believe we've had a signal instance of God's mercy this year in December I was with charismatic leaders from all over England who were met in conference and I shared with them that I believe the Lord was revealing that a spiritual battle was going to take place centered around the general election and that we were on the verge of something that would come as a shock to Christians that for the very first time in my life Christians had begun to be persecuted for their faith in Britain now I've been saying for six years now that persecution was on its way but people just looked at me with blank faces. They can't imagine it. They can imagine in Romania 10,000 Bibles being pulped into toilet rolls. Did you see that as you came in? But here? But in the last 12 months persecution has begun in this country against Christians and it has begun where there were too few Christians on the ground to act as salt namely in the inner cities and in those cities the persecution has begun and Christian fellowships are now being denied the use of community premises community centers for worship and people have talked before the election of introducing legislation which would remove charitable status from churches or Christian bodies that opposed homosexual practice, which means no more covenanting tax returns, and removing rates from mensas and parsonages. And the most serious of all, it was voiced that if certain people got into power in this country, police protection would be withdrawn from fellowships and individual Christians who opposed homosexual practice. And this was being talked about freely towards the end of 1986. Now, this is not a political statement, this is a moral statement. There were politicians poised, and they are still poised, to take power in this land who will actively and openly persecute Christians. 
friend of mine in East London put up a notice outside his church, Jesus is the only way to God. And he was told by council authorities to take it down or he'd be taken to court under the Race Discrimination Act. It is coming in these areas. We're on the verge of persecution. And I believe there was a real spiritual battle building up for the general election. We spent general election day, my wife and I, with the Christian personnel of the airlines, with pilots, stewardesses and ground staff from the airlines, who had already called for a day of prayer on that very date before they knew it was the general election. And we joined them and we spent from nine in the morning till ten at night talking and praying through. And we had great liberty that day to pray. And I don't think any election in England has had so much prayer as this last one. I find that God called his people to pray all over England. And the result was very surprising. Now listen, God is not Tory. Don't make any mistake about that. There are prophetic things that need to be said to this government. But I believe that God, who has the casting vote in every election, voted tactically. That means not voting to get someone in, but voting to get someone out. And I believe the surprise results were God's mercy on us to give us a breathing space before real persecution hits the church because we are not ready for it. Now you can check this all out with the Lord and don't believe a word I say unless he confirms it. But I believe he's given us a breathing space. He's shown us his mercy. What will we do with that breathing space? Will we exploit his mercy and go back to our complacency? Or will we desperately get on with the battle for Britain? We have got to treble the number of convinced, committed Christians in Britain or we've lost the battle. We don't have enough salt to fertilize and disinfect society unless we can treble the number of Christians. And time is not on our side. We've got a breathing space to do it. But it's not on our side. Please, don't exploit God's mercy. But human nature being what it is, God, if you let them off, they'll go right back to their old state. And that's what people do. They are exploiting God's mercy because he does not judge us. We ignore him as a nation. Because he has kept war away from us now for 40 years. Because he's kept famine away from us. Because he's kept pestilence away from us. And believe me, AIDS hasn't hit yet. Because of all this, people are going back to their comfortable, complacent. Right back to where we were. Do you know, even World War II, Winston Churchill's five great volumes of World War II history, they really are a masterpiece in literature, if nothing else. But to read those years, I'm old enough to remember them, I went through them. And you know, the final volume is entitled Triumph and Tragedy. And is subtitled, How the Great Democracies Triumphed and Thus Were Able to Resume the Follies Which Had So Nearly Cost Them Their Lives. Triumph and Tragedy. That can happen to the church too. When God is merciful. Now I begin to round it up. Let me say just two more things. First. In the realm of mercy. The rights. 
belong entirely to the one who is offering it, not to the ones who receive it. Therefore, the person who is offering mercy has a total right to choose whom he gives mercy to. Now this is terribly important. In the realm of justice, God has to be has to give justice to everyone. I dare to say this, God has a duty to give justice to everyone because of his holy character. But he does not have any obligation to give mercy to everyone or anyone. He is perfectly free to choose who he will give more than they deserve to. The parable tells us that. The king or the employer says, I have the right to do what I want with my money. I will choose who to show mercy to. I'm not showing mercy to everybody. And listen, this is an offense to the unbeliever. God does not show mercy to everyone. He has the right to choose whom he shows mercy to. Because we have no right to his mercy. He has the right to give it to whomever he decides. And that's why the Bible says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, says the Lord. I choose. And we must never forget that. This is why the unbeliever is so offended by predestination. The believer knows that predestination is based on mercy. It is simply the statement that God has the right to choose whom he will show mercy to. It is of the very essence of mercy that no one has a right to it. That the person who gives it has the freedom to choose. That is God's right. And I stand here tonight to proclaim God's right to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Which raises the very important question. On what grounds does he choose to have mercy on anyone? Are they purely arbitrary? Does he get the telephone directory and take a heavenly pin and stab names and say, I'll have mercy on Mrs. Jones, but not on Mrs. Smith. I'll have mercy on Mr. Brown, but not on... No. Knowing God's character, we know the people he chooses to have mercy on. Do you want to know? It's very important. Three things are said in scripture. First, he loves to have mercy on those who cry for mercy. Who realize they have no claim on him whatsoever. Who realize they have done nothing to deserve anything other than death at his hands. And when a person like that cries for mercy, God cannot resist the appeal. That is why anybody who thinks he's good, anyone who thinks they have a claim on God, shuts the channel of his mercy up straight away. There's nothing more offensive to God than self-righteousness. Than someone who thinks they've got a claim on God. No claim. Do you know that I was on Canadian television on a program that goes out every day on the main network, the global channel, to the whole of Canada and into a part of America. And uh, the host of the chat show said I had 20 minutes to talk about anything I liked. Oh, I wish the BBC would give me that chance. Did anybody know where I was worshipping this morning, by the way? One of you. So you were at home watching television, were you? 
You were, right. You're not the only one who gets put on television, you know. <laughs> but anyway, here I was. BBC don't give a chance like that. Oh, wishy-washy sentimental stuff that goes out on BBC, really. And ITV. And the, the host chat show host said, what would you like to talk about? I said, the kingdom of God. And he looked at me and his face said it all. His face said, well, they'll all switch off by the hundred. Well, kingdom of God, that's not a very... But he said, all right, I promised you could. You go ahead. And so I did. There were telephones in the studio for people to ring in. And a viewer rang in. And a woman's voice said, I'm a hooker. That's the Canadian for prostitute. She said, I'm on Yonge Street in Toronto. I've been watching your program. She said, I have a question. I said, what's your question? How can I get into that kingdom, please? Why do you want to get in? It's time I got my life straightened out. When you preach the kingdom gospel, the right people respond. You can tell whether your minister's preaching the right gospel by whether the hookers are coming in. That was meant to be a serious remark. Because when Jesus preached his gospel, they came in. Shall I tell you why? Because they knew they had no claim on God. They weren't goody-goodies, respectable people in their Sunday best. It was the crooked financiers and the prostitutes who loved what Jesus said because he spoke of mercy. And when somebody knows they don't deserve a thing and comes to God and says, God, mercy. He told a story of two men who went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee and the publican, and you know the whole story, don't you? The Pharisee stood at the front and his prayer was full of the first person. I thank you that I am not as other men are. I give tithes of all that I possess. And I fast twice in the week. And his prayer got no higher than the ceiling. The Bible says he prayed thus with himself. A lot of people do that. Most people pray, but most people pray with themselves. There was a man at the back. He said, God, I've fiddled all my accounts. I've stolen from people. I'm hated in the town. I've made a lot of money and lost a lot of friends. I'm a no good. God be merciful. And he went home and his wife said, have you had a good day at the tax office? He said, no, I haven't been at the tax office. Well, where have you been? I've been at the temple. You? In the temple? Amazing they let you in. What have you been doing there? Praying. And you think God would listen to your prayers? He did. I'm going to be right. I'm his friend. He's accepted me. It's the religious people that Jesus couldn't get into the kingdom. And the churches are full of religious people. It was the good people he had to say to, I came to heal the sick and you're not sick enough. The whole have no need of it.